Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, as the nation ponders why Charlie of Casualty is the highest paid actor at the BBC, we discuss the fallout from this great experiment and find out just how sensitive all that commercially sensitive information really is. Also on the show, what's the future for local journalism? Is it more closures or robots? Plus, this year's McTaggart speaker is announced why SoundCloud users are right to be worried and in the media quiz... We're out to libel as many people as possible, allegedly. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me today on the roof terrace again, we couldn't help ourselves, at Picture House Central is media consultant Paul Robinson and making her debut on the programme, it's investigative reporter Maeve McClanahan. Welcome to you both. Jet Setter Paul, where have you been off to since we last spoke? Oh, that's far too long. That'll take the entire podcast. But I've got plenty more air miles. Thank you. This is a great location, though. And I think the first time ever to get a complimentary half of beer on the podcast. So I'm happy already. That's a man who otherwise only drinks in Soho House. Uh, Maeve, you work at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Good times for you and your kind? Certainly interesting times. Um, I'm actually working on a project that works specifically on local journalism and trying to support local journalists around the UK, given the nature and the topics that we're going to discuss in the show. It's a really, really interesting time to yeah, talk Yeah, a bit about of a this. hot topic. We should also mention as well that you have your own podcast. Plug away, there's no rules here. Yes, I have launched a podcast called The Tip-Off. Basically, episode by episode, we talk to different investigative journalists and they talk us through how they got some amazing scoops. So there's wigs, there's car chases, there's dead bodies, there's all kinds of gory details and really interesting bits behind some amazing investigative stories. All in one podcast, my goodness me, that sounds like must listen. Must listen, Paul Robinson, there you are, you've got a quote for the DVD Thank box you. set. tune in, it's called The Tip-Off. <laughs> We're going to begin this week with um, what is to become an annual treat for us in the media, BBC Payday, uh, where we find out how much the corporation's biggest stars and Alan Yentob are paid. Uh, This, you may remember, was agreed as part of the recent licence fee settlement and it aims to keep the Beeb accountable to licence fee payers. Before we go too far into this particular rabbit hole, Paul, 
these numbers aren't straight, are they? They're not just black and white. You can't just look at these numbers and say, oh, well, that's what everyone gets paid. Well, no, because, of course, some have got agents, there's commissions in there, and, of course, people are doing mixed jobs. You know, some people are doing radio and TV. You know, if you compare, for example, uh, the two presenters on the one show, you know, they're doing different jobs. So you can't say those two numbers are completely comparable. But that's because they're they're doing the same job on the one show, but they're doing different jobs in the sense that Matt Baker also presents the Olympics and Country Fire. So how much does he get paid for doing his sport? commentary you know compared to what Alex gets for doing what else she does but it has been fascinating I think one headline which people haven't really written is how much the radio guys are being paid mm. I think that was a real eye-opener for me in the top 10 you've got uh, Chris Evans Jeremy Vine Steve Wright John Humphreys a lot of radio guys in the top 10 surprising you know John Humphreys he is a veteran broadcaster let's be honest he's not going to be around forever and he slowly had pay rises no doubt whilst he's been at the BBC Jeremy Vine, he does telly as well. Chris Evans, he does telly as well. His top gear salary is probably in there. Steve Wright, not to diminish what he does, but all he does is his three-hour show every day on Radio 2, and he's getting over half a million pounds a year for it. Was that a surprise to you? No, it wasn't, actually. I thought he might be on more than that. I did know what Steve was earning at Radio 1, but I wouldn't disclose that, of course. But he has been doing that afternoon show on Radio 2 now for 18... Decades. 18... (laughs) Well, exactly. it It is millions of decades. And, of course, the show sounds the same really as it did on Radio 1 25 years ago but it is still the most listened to afternoon radio show in the UK on any radio station and of course Steve will have got increases every year so over 18 years it adds up and that's why he's on half a million pounds Uh, it looks large in context of everybody else but I wasn't that surprised no is there still a marketplace for talent like that though I wonder because you know when you were at Radio 1, no doubt. I mean, Steve Wright did go to talk radio for a while, didn't he? And um, no doubt Capital would have taken him or Hart if they existed then or whatever. But now, I mean, who would pay half a million pounds for Steve Wright now apart from Radio 2? Well, I think someone might pay for Steve Wright, but I think the whole issue here is interesting and that the BBC were resistant about this because they said it would actually cause uh, problems with um, talent inflation, it would result in poaching. The reality is that many of these people on the salaries they're on um, are not going to be poached by the market. I mean, no one is going to uh, go to Stephen Nolan and say, good though he is, um, here's more than half a million pounds, please come to commercial radio. It's not going to happen. So I think the issue is that if you look at the market, some of these people do look overpaid. Although he does, to be fair, have a massive show in Northern Ireland, doesn't he? I mean, he, he is kind does, of the Chris Evans but, of Ulster. But I mean, Northern Ireland, obviously, a very important um, uh, part of the UK, but a very small part of the UK. So per listener, he's paid very, very well. OK, so Maeve, let's talk about that from a gender point of view then as well, because I, a lot of people have looked at the women and what they've been paid. Uh, and it's hard, as we've been saying, to do a side-by-side comparison. But let's take Vanessa Feltz, for example, because she is doing a phone-in talk show and it's a breakfast show and she's getting paid substantially less than someone like Steve Wright who's also purely just doing radio but then it is basically a local radio show so should you expect that Vanessa Feltz would be earning three times as much or does it seem about right to you? I mean that, that certainly that example yeah it seems pretty confusing I think um, as Paul was saying you know that it seems like these huge sums are really paid for these kind of personality characters really to get those big names in but, you know, it, it does make you question what else could you buy for that money? How many other journalists could be uncovering amazing scoops, um, doing all that behind-the-scenes work? Well, from that point of view, uh, as an investigative journalist, I mean, it is important, isn't it, to have brands and personalities wrapping your stories up and telling the public about them. I mean, arguably, more people would hear about a piece of investigative journalism if Jeremy Vine presents it to them on Radio 2 than, than if they read it in Private Eye. Yeah, potentially. I mean, you hope if the story is good enough and the content is good enough, then these kind of big names, they might add to it, but hopefully the stories would travel by themselves. 
I think when you look through that that list, it's interesting to see how many of those big, big names are presenters rather than journalists. And, you know, that kind of makes you question just how much work somebody has to do to, to earn that uh, if the other people behind the scenes are kind of paddling away underwater. And, uh, but then again, some of the huge journalists at the BBC work for independent production companies, so they're simply not on there, which again is possibly distorting. I mean, where's Andrew Neil on that list? I'm sure he's on more than 150 grand, but he's paid through Juniper. Exactly. So the company will be getting paid and his salary won't be disclosed. So, of course, he's invisible. I think what's also interesting is how Radio 1 DJs are not in brilliant on here. I mean, mm. uh, Nick Grimshaw is. Uh, Greg James is 150,000. He looks quite underpaid compared to some of his other colleagues. But the Radio 1 DJs aren't really on there. It's the Radio 2 DJs and the Radio 4 presenters who are really doing very well for themselves. Okay, so surprises then. Who's getting paid too much? Who's not getting paid enough? Can we all agree Claire Balding should probably be on more? I don't know you know, if she's being paid by an indie as well, but she's on less than half of Gary Lineker. That doesn't seem about right. I mean, I think Claudia Winkleman is very good and she's the highest paid woman, but I think actually for what she does, that's actually a lot of money. Um, she's actually doing Strictly for a you know, number of weeks per year and one weekly show on Radio 2. That seems a lot to me. Chris Evans is obviously overpaid, but we don't know what that number's going to look like when Top Gear's taken out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that'll be interesting next year. And the one uh, show. And the one show. I mean, at the end of the day, I think this is all a bit of fun and a bit of nonsense. <laughs> I don't think there's any damage to the BBC. You know, it gives us something to write about, something to speculate about. You know, the real issue here is the BBC's accountability to licence fee payers. And what worries me more is the numbers that Tony Hall reveals showing that, in fact, the average salary in the BBC continues to go up. The number of managers in the BBC continues to go up. The number of staff continues to go up. And they've been asked to reduce staffing and reduce salary costs and reduce average costs. And he says, oh, we've recruited loads and loads of graduates, which will be cheaper. But then why is the average salary now up to 44,000 and still trending upwards? That's a bigger issue for me. And this is about public money and public money being spent appropriately and just making sure the BBC does do that. And I love the BBC. I'm a huge supporter of the BBC. But it has this privileged licence fee. And with that licence fee goes a degree of accountability. And therefore, to some extent, the BBC should expect this scrutiny. Whether big stars should be exposed, I'm, I'm on the fence on that. But in terms of accountability, the BBC needs to be accountable. Any surprises for you, Maeve? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure it is a bit of fun. I think the gender inequalities that we saw that came out of it, and also the fact that you know it's so white, all of that list. I, I had a quick look through, and there's 11 out of the 96 of people of colour. You know, that kind of thing does need to be explored and debated, and I think that's that's been really interesting. So when you see the likes of Emily Maitlis, you know, uh, earning a lot less than Evan Davies or, or other people in similar positions, that kind of makes you wonder what's happening there behind the scenes. I did wonder as well, I know you're not supposed to think this kind of thing, but I did wonder when I saw Clive Myrie and then Amal Rajan discussing this on the News at 10, whether that was, you know, actually just quite convenient scheduling for them in terms of the presenters they had covering this, when that is a problem. It did feel like the BBC might have scheduled very carefully to avoid sensitive people. Mm. And I, I do mean, Fiona agree- Bruce isn't going to yeah. stand there and discuss her own salary, no. I, mean, I appreciate that. And I, and I do agree with you, I mean, if it's generally the case that uh, people who are not uh, white men are being paid less, that's a big problem the BBC must address it, and if there is a proper uh, evaluation that's a very big outcome of this I think what may be the case is the BBC has been working towards improving its portrayal on the air but only relatively recently so probably some of the people who have come through been doing the jobs less long period and therefore they're paid less because they've not been doing it so long. In the BBC you definitely do find your salary creeps up the more and more years you do the job. I mean someone like Misha Hussain on, on, on the Today programme doing the same job as John Humphreys but she's paid considerably less and you have to question that. 
Well, but actually, I, <laughs> I hesitate to use the phrase talent to describe myself, but, you know, as someone who's presented programmes for the BBC. That, thank you very much. We love you, love you. Uh, <laughs> if I turn up as a, a talking head on, you know, you and yours or Jeremy Vine or something, it's a struggle to get 30 quid or 50 quid out of the BBC. This story distorts that idea and makes it seem as if everyone who's being paid by the BBC is being paid bucket loads. That couldn't be further from the truth. And when I present a show... You know, my salary's okay, but it's similar to what I got paid in commercial radio, slightly less. And I suppose the point I'm making is, if in 30 years' time I ended up presenting Breakfast on Radio 2, well, I've spent 30 years trying to do this job for not very much money, and that's the reward at the end. Well, look at BBC Local Radio, standard fee there, one two five per show. Yeah. So you've got people who are quite uh, big names from, uh, you know, Roger Day to Graham Dean being paid £125 for a two-hour show on BBC Local Radio. Yeah. So there is a bit of a thus and them there. One woman who is getting bigger bucks than her male counterpart is the new boss at ITV, Dame Carolyn McCall. She may earn over £25 million over five years for becoming chief exec, compared to £24.9 million for Adam Crozier. I say may because obviously it's all tied in with bonuses and stuff. Uh, Maeve, what do we know about Carolyn McCall? Well, we know that she was formerly of EasyJet. And she seems to have really impressed people there. And then previous to that was a chief executive at the Guardian Media Group. So I think she's been welcomed generally um, in most corners as somebody who can kind of shake things up and, and um, tighten up budgets and kind of push things forward. So it'll be really interesting to see what she manages to do there. What do you think, Paul? What challenges lie ahead for Carolyn? Well, I mean, the trouble for ITV, you know, is how does it survive in a world where Viewing is going to non-linear to subscription paid services. You know, you see this week Netflix announces another 5 million subs in the last quarter. Free to air is a challenge. And the only way you can keep advertisers on board is by having programming that people must watch at that particular time it's broadcast. Her challenge is in a world that's going to digital, that's going to non-linear viewing at a very rapid rate. How does she keep a free-to-air uh, advertising-funded television business alive? Now, Crozier's done a great job by investing in ITV production and uh, that and is... buying a, everyone. And buying all but, the... But he's bought everyone. What's he's left bought for her everyone. to buy? But they've... I mean, you have to say, ITV has made some very good shows in-house and has been very successful at selling those overseas. Um, and he's done a great job and he's, he's brought the share price up but the question really is what's in the in the locker now what's in the cupboard now to keep that upward trajectory and it can't just be about cost cutting uh, although ITV has successfully diversified from being an advertising reliant broadcaster I think now nearly uh, only about half the total revenue now comes from advertising that trend of the um, the risk to advertising is going to continue so that's her challenge how does she keep that business buoyant how does she keep the stock price up she's got a great track record as you were saying I mean and, and her time at the Guardian Media Group will serve her well um, EasyJet has had some problems too I mean EasyJet's problem now is a cost problem you know you can, if you benchmark EasyJet to Ryanair and the other low-cost airlines EasyJet's got a problem of cost so I think we will see uh, her having a, an attack again on ITV's cost but it's not a job that's um, an easy one she's taken on not a poison chalice but a, a tough tough challenge so that's why they're paying her so highly I mean Maeve it's one of those jobs ITV isn't it that you know every five years or so as, as Paul was suggesting there it goes from being a good job to a, to a terrible job and it's not necessarily the fault of the chief executive at all it's to do with the advertising market it's to do with how their shows are performing at the time Right but I feel like I don't know, as Paul was saying, with, with this talent that has come across and been brought in from different places, that 
now is potentially one of those times when it could be on a kind of upward swing. Um, but I guess time will tell. But she's a very good executive. Uh, and I think they've made a very good choice. And um, Can we talk about her media bit? Because yeah. I, what I remember is uh, people, when she was uh, appointed at EasyJet, saying, well, she's only ever run a media company before. What does she know about aeroplanes? So obviously turn that around. And, and you know, now the impression is she's one of the city's absolute top CEOs. What does she know about media? I mean, what did she do at GMG? Well, she was obviously not an editorial person. I mean, The Guardian was run by Alan Rushbury. She was the, uh, the business brains behind the Guardian Media Group. I mean, she was the one who managed the investment portfolio, and obviously that group had a lot of third-party investments. She managed those. Um, she managed the commercial side of the business. Um, Which had no a, TV or video in it, did it? And they had radio it, then. It had radio, but, did, but that obviously was then disbanded. But I think it's more about her understanding of how you connect with consumers um, and how you monetize those. And that's the skill she then took to EasyJet. I mean, a low-cost airline is not an easy thing because, gosh, you've got you know Virgin and BA who are the incumbent uh, full-service operators. You've got to offer something different. You've got to fill those planes. You've got to make sure they take off. You've got to make sure the customer service is decent. You've got to get the money in. You've got to try and keep your costs down. Uh, you've got to keep a, a, safe, a track safety record. She's done all that very, very well. Those operational skills, she can transfer to ITV. She's not going to be making programs. She's not going to be deciding what the next big hit is. She's going to be running the business side of ITV and making sure it works as a business. If I'm going to make a really cumbersome comparison, and this kind of is bollocks, but <laughs> if you are going to make one, you could say that where she succeeded at EasyJet is she's brought business customers onto a low-budget, no-frills airline and made them think of it as a reasonable choice to travel business. They pay more, they can choose their seats now and all the rest of it. In a way, that's what ITV needs to do, isn't it? You know, it's always going to be the heartland for Ant and Deck and Coronation Street, but it needs those upmarket viewers as well who spend money when they watch the ads. Yeah, and we, I guess we saw a bit of that in their election coverage. I think they started to pull viewers across, and similarly what they've been doing in the, the evening news. You know, they've, they've kind of been pumping resources and, and focus into that kind of side of things, and I think that has pulled in some, some viewership that might have been coming across from other channels. OK, before the break, as they say on ITV, it was announced this week that delivering the the TV Festival's keynote McTaggart lecture next month will be Channel 4's Jon Snow. Maeve, good choice? I love Jon Snow. He's my favourite. That so, wasn't uh, the question. <laughs> sorry, yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would listen to him talk whenever, wherever. Um, I think he'll, he'll have some interesting insights. Um, he's obviously had the career span to kind of see things through and see see changes um, yeah I think he'll be an interesting speaker do you think he'll stir it up though I mean that's sort of what you want from a McTaggart speaker isn't it someone who, who posits a new theory potentially I mean if the Glastonbury rumours are anything to go by <laughs> who knows if he starts a, a chant of uh, Jeremy Corbyn that will be quite interesting Paul what do you think I was disappointed actually uh, I think McTaggart uh, traditionally has had someone who has proposed a new paradigm has actually challenge the status quo has thrown something out there that really makes you think and he may do this I mean obviously we don't know yet what he's going to say I'm not sure he's quite in the same caliber he's going to have to really come up with a proposition that's going to thrill amaze stun us all I mean his stories his recollection his track record fantastic great journalist love him too yeah. as a broadcaster I just thought mm, a little bit of a safe slightly lazy choice the other thing I'd say about McTaggart is too few women another white man you know a bit of a shame 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, isn't it, Maeve? What's he got to say, Jon Snow, about the future of streaming media or about advertiser-funding content or, you know, any of those issues that people in the audience might care about, mobile delivery mechanisms? You know, he's a veteran journalist, that's his thing. Sure. I mean, I'm racking my brains now trying to think who would be a better better option. I'm sure there would be some, some really interesting folks out there that might be on the kind of cutting edge... Ted Sarandos, founder of Netflix. How he, do how we in, think he wasn't twen- tasked? How, Let's be honest. How in 20 years don't he, we think he he's on the being videos in envelopes to Netflix? But don't, don't we think he wasn't? He was asked. Depends who asks him. No. How, depends who asks and how you persuade. Everyone is gettable with the right person asking and the right approach. Right, we're going to take a break now. More news after this. Dear listener, this episode of the Media Podcast is supported by you. Now, if at this moment that fills you with a warm feeling of pride for having made a donation already this year at themediapodcast.com slash donate, then you are most welcome. We are happy to have helped make your day. If, however, you've suddenly felt this pang of guilt emerging deep in your gut, well, let me help you remedy that. Go to themediapodcast.com slash donate and give generously now. All donations go directly towards making this show. We are not backed by a publisher or a network. You may have noticed that in some of my commentary. So, when you support us, you allow independent media to thrive. Go to themediapodcast.com slash donate. Thanks. Time for some news in brief now. Maeve and Paul are still with me. And the former Culture Secretary, John Whittingdale, spoke to the Independent Press Standards Organisation, IPSO, last week. Uh, Maeve, what was he talking about? So he was talking about the uncertainty that now exists around what exactly is going to happen with Section 40 of the Crime and Courts Act. Uh, Obviously, in the Conservative Manifesto, they had talked about scrapping it, repealing this. Now, obviously, with the election turning out as it has... Mm no longer clear if they're going to have the kind of political clout or the, the power in government and remind us what the significance through. of section 40 was and why the Tories wanted to repeal it sure so section 40 came out of the Leveson inquiry and it has kind of various elements to it but the bit that's caused the most uh, contention I guess is that it basically opens the door to people being able to sue news organizations and put all of the costs even if the news organization is in the right onto the publishers and what critics say is that almost certainly would have a chilling effect on the type of stories that people can do because the people are going to threaten to sue you and you're going to waste thousands potentially millions of pounds in in kind of legal tangles because of that then you just might not do those really big important stories so it kind of got put through in this act and now the conservative party have said that you know it's basically forcing uh, journalists or publishers to sign up to a flawed system and that you know there was all these kind of complications and problems inherent in it but whether it will be repealed i mean it's it's pretty unclear now well it's always going to be unclear isn't it if it's the former culture secretary talking to ipso rather than the current one i mean why is there not clarity i think the government is trying to work out 101 different things probably right now (laughs) and not least uh you know brexit and, and all of that I'm not sure it's quite clear. I know there was a kind of briefing paper put out in the House of Parliament library just a few days ago, which kind of outlined things and, and you know explained where things stood. 
but going forward I think you know as, as coalitions of chaos or otherwise are, are being built then um, you know this might be something that comes up for discussion but it's probably fairly low down on the order of things to to be uh, straightened out at this point. He also talked about the need for Ipso to get out of the PCC's shadow I mean he sort of said words to the effect of didn't he let's be honest let's look at what's happened there's not that much that's different about what Ipso's done so far to what the PCC used to do. Yeah, he was kind of making the point that, you know, Ipso's been around for a few years now and there hasn't really been any fines, which is one of the things that, that you know, the powers that they that have to impose. That was the big impose. great white hope, yeah. Uh-huh. Fine. Right, right, so there haven't been any fines and the kind of chastising or the raps on the knuckles that have come have been pretty lightweight. Um, so kind of those critiques of the PCC that existed previously, it, it's potentially that in another form. Now, Paul, I'm sorry to do an Emma Barnett on you, but I'm going to reveal the notes you have in front of you. Uh, You have the entire text of John Whittingdale's speech there with handwritten notes. I want to know what you thought as you read it. Well, I did actually read the speech. The first thing I'd say is it's a slightly pompously written speech. And I did find it very hard to read because he uses lots of subordinate clauses and you try and think, what what does that actually mean, John? Um, But, um, look, I mean, as as you say, this is not going to be a priority for the government. I mean, gosh, they've just got a working majority with the DUP. Without it, they haven't. This is not top of their list. I mean, the issue is going to be, is it going to financially penalise newspapers who otherwise would uh, write stories that they might need to write? And they're going to be scared, as you say, and therefore it's going to make them more cautious uh, to avoid going into court. Um, I don't think this is going to be in the next parliament and maybe not the one after that. So we're probably going to have to live with Section 40 uh, staying there for the moment and it will at some point be repealed but not by a minority Conservative government. And what did you think of his contention that papers could still shrink their costs without closing titles or cutting back on journalism? Well, I think that's a very, very difficult thing to argue. I mean, gosh, you know, we hear about everyday uh, newspapers which are struggling to make costs meet. The issue is uh, people are stopping, you know, reading papers and advertisers are walking away from them. So, I mean, gosh, if he's got a secret source for doing that, great, but I can't see it. Uh, Maeve, I'm going to guess that you're coming from a similar perspective on that one. Right. It, I mean, it would be fantastic if we had another couple of pages on that speech where he outlined exactly how that could be done, <laughs> but I don't see any of that. Yeah, the so your notes there in the, got left in the, off yeah. no, well, on I the hyperlink. It's the end, and it's not at the end of the yeah, speech. Okay. So, you know, he talks about lots of other stuff, but not about that. <laughs> OK, sticking on a similar theme, the uh, Press Gazette have been reporting this week that the local paper for residents of Grenfell Tower is one of four in London in threat of closure. In 1990, the Kensington and Chelsea reporter had 10 journalists dedicated to the borough. Now that number, Maeve, do you know how many it is? Is it one, part-time? It's it's zero. Sharing resources with other papers. Maeve, we know that residents had blogged about their safety concerns in Grenfell Tower, but the mainstream press didn't pick up that story. It's tempting to say that more local, healthy local journalism could have prevented Grenfell, but is that idealism too I mean obviously Grenfell was a huge tragedy and that there was a kind of myriad number of factors but I, I really do think that local journalism has a huge role to play in kind of flagging some of those issues up and it really does make you think if, if that's happening in London where all the media is let's be honest virtually all the media is then are there similar things you know what's going on in Bradford what's going on in Leeds where there aren't those same kind of you know the the, the Guardian and the Independent and Daily Mail just round the corner. So I do think that the local journalism there could have played a huge role in this. And there are people kind of stepping into to the gaps left. There's these kind of hyper-local blogs popping up. 
and they do amazing work but sometimes it does take that kind of basically somebody had a full-time job doggedly keeping on if, if somebody had been putting those questions to the local council and reporting back on the the responses then then maybe more attention would have been paid sooner well, Paul, there is a BBC incentive around this, isn't there? They're going to be providing a pool of 150 local reporters that the local media can use, writing court reports, attending council meetings, that sort of thing. Uh, do you think that might help local papers and make them viable? I, I do. I mean, I think there's a, a bigger sort of aspect to this, and that is that Grenfell was an accident that happened in Grenfell and a tragedy, of course. But will that happen elsewhere or could it happen elsewhere? And what's been shocking, I think, is how many other tower blocks have been clad with similar materials that might cause another Grenfell-type disaster, not just in London but throughout the, the, the country. So I think the great shame is that this story wasn't picked up locally and then picked up at a London level. Um, I mean, at a London level, there are a lot of local um, sources, you know, London papers, London radio stations, London television news, um, and really they should have picked it up. But I guess the question is, why didn't they? Maybe they didn't because there wasn't a local journalist on the ground, as you say, really doing the digging uh, and really doing the, attending the meetings uh, and being there. So I think yes is the answer. London is really such a huge region that you do need sub-local newspapers, journalists doing that work otherwise these things will slip by so I, I think any scheme that can help to ensure that people are actually on the ground and really causing uh, councils to be held to account is a good thing and Maeve there's still this romantic idea isn't there of the kind of the spotlight team beavering away for six months working on some investigative journalism which in itself is I mean it's almost egocentric isn't it it's about those individuals saying I've discovered everything about this story Sometimes are investigative journalists their own worst enemy in the sense they don't like to pool resources. They won't want to use what the BBC have reported. Maybe, I, yeah. I, I think there's, I mean, after you've done a year's worth of reporting, you kind of want to shout about it. And I don't know if it's egocentricism as much as just kind of pure obsession and, and you can't really think of anything else and you forget what else you talk about with your friends because all you know is this one really niche bit of, of council legislation or whatever it might be. But I do think, yeah, collaboration is is a, a really important thing going forward. Um, you know, we have seen it in London and, and across the UK. There are some of these kind of um, conglomerate groups, so like Archant Investigations, which has only two and a half people. Um, Explain but, the half. Yes, yeah, so I'm somebody <laughs> working part time, okay. as I understand it. But but they do amazing things. Um, you know, Emma Yule there just won the the Paul Foot Award. You mm. mentioned her in a previous show. She writes for ten different papers across Does London. She? Wow. So she's kind of scrambling, and she's doing investigations, and she's doing reporting. But what we're doing at, at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism is we have this Bureau local project where we're trying to set up a network kind of akin to the ICIJ's you know, global reach, where the idea is that you know, the, the, the end product is bigger than the sum of its parts. We have 360 journalists and local tech people across the UK. And if we get everybody working on one big story, um, feeding in and kind of collaborating and sharing methodology and inspirations, then that can kind of help to drive local reporters and, and, and they can find their own stories in bigger data sets or whatever it might be. Well, perhaps the answer is robots. Hmm. Have you seen this story? Everybody's so scared of the, the attack of the killer robots. Um, huh? This is the story that the Press Association have announced that they're working with Google to create software that will take care of um, some of the more tedious elements of um, journalism. E explain. Right, so they're talking about kind of automating certain systems so that they can kind of pull down big data sets easily, slice them up really, you know, quickly. I think they're talking about even, 
using some you know kind of automated tools to write some of the copy around that and then those would kind of be sent out and they would do some of the heavy lifting around the big data for for local reporters um i guess what i would say to that is is from my experience data is always the starting point to a story it's a great lead but then you have to do extra work on top of that and i'm not sure that automation can do the whole picture so yeah you can slice up the data but if you don't know what's happening in your local area and you don't have people on the ground there then you don't know why this anomaly might be happening if there's some really obvious explanation that might you know explain it all the way if it even is a news story at all I mean, Paul, this obviously isn't an entirely philanthropic idea on the behalf of, of Google, who are in the business of collecting data and generating more data. But on the other hand, they don't have to do this, and it will assist some journalists. Uh, does that good outweigh the potential bad, which is that proprietors might think, oh, we can save even more money, let's cut the junior research in? Well, there's always that risk. I'm not sure that Google and philanthropic goes together. It's almost an oxymoron, that. But I think that um, the important point has already been made, and that is that it may well help with some of the drudgery and some of the, I guess, highlighting of potential stories. At the end of the day, a journalist has to do the work, has to ask the questions, has to do the thinking, has to do the legwork. But um, if predictive um, algorithms can be used to identify data that might throw up an interesting story and then the journalists can pick that up and take it on, it might just save a bit of money. I desperately hope that this is not used as an excuse to cut uh, journalists' resources but actually to improve services. Um, I suspect we may end up with some rather funny stories because data doesn't do this, can't it? You can just imagine in the future, you know, data throwing up a story that sort of proves, you know, bananas are blue or something and then that's written up as a story automatically and of course it's nonsense. But that's going to happen, isn't it? Almost certainly. Right, you know, shocker that there aren't any farms in London. Well, that's not that much of a shocker unless you're a robot. In London. Okay. Well, okay. City farm in uh, in. Um, that's a very nice East farm. London. Good point. <laughs> Are you a regular customer, Paul? I do. They do a very good breakfast, actually. No, Bacon and sausage is fantastic. Yeah. It's good to learn, isn't it? More and more about our participants on a weekly basis. Um, Particularly Sunday morning, actually. Yeah. yeah, Sunday morning, walk down there, nice breakfast, walk back, you know, sleep off the afternoon. Sticking with web services, let's talk about uh, SoundCloud, the music and podcast hosting platform. Uh, this week, TechCrunch reported they are running out of cash. Now, whilst SoundCloud have now strongly denied that that is the case, the facts are that this month they cut 40% of their workforce and they shut down their offices in San Francisco and in London. Uh, Paul, there's going to be a lot of users worried about their audio right now. Do you think it's that serious? Well, I think it is because we know that SoundCloud are spending more than they're earning. So although they've currently got enough cash to see them through, I think that's factually accurate, they will run out of cash again unless they can cut their costs to increase their earnings. I mean, there are a few basic problems with SoundCloud. The first thing is it's not a clear proposition. Um, they haven't got deals with all the record companies. They've just done the deal with Universal Music. They haven't got a deal with uh, Sony. Um, their costs are too high. I mean, they pay very, very well. Uh, the average salary there is £79,000. So even by BBC standards, that's incredibly well paid. Um, and they've got 236 people. So you have to ask what they're all doing. Um, and they've completely failed to get their business model right. They've not launched a subscription service yet. Um, so you've got um, Spotify just doing it better and with greater clarity. So the problem with SoundCloud really is been around a long time, haven't innovated, haven't really kept up. No one's really clear what they're there for. 
I, I guess, in a sense, they're kind of a, a desktop proposition in the mobile world, aren't they? Yeah, as well? they are. And they just feel a bit sort of... I, I said earlier, they're like WH Smith. You know, you sort of go there occasionally, but it's not a destination. I suppose, what are the alternatives? I mean, you're a podcaster. If, if you were a young R&B artist, <laughs> where else would you upload no, to not. if SoundCloud disappeared? <laughs> yeah, good question. I mean, yes, having just launched this, this podcast, Tip Off Podcast, um, I, I put it all on SoundCloud. That was the kind of, you know, having read around, that was the... the the free hosting platform that seemed to make sense mm. I think people are now going to be scrambling there are you know there's these other platforms the, the Acast and the Audio Boom types for um for, for podcasting but I'm not sure, so sure for music and for this other stuff I'm not and they sure don't necessarily they resonate so much with uh, the public yeah no it's true I mean I have to believe that if SoundCloud go under someone else will come along and do something better uh, and similar I mean there are some things that are unique to the technology actually still like being able to comment on a track at a certain point in the track which is actually quite I mean that's clever technology isn't it Facebook needs that yes Um, and I'm sure they'll have it soon because they're copying everything yeah well maybe they'll (laughs) maybe my optimistic take was maybe they'll buy SoundCloud but yeah maybe you're right Uh, finally just before the quiz happy birthday to the new European friends of the show the newspaper was planned to be just a pop-up for a few weeks after the EU referendum but it's still with us Maeve what do you think the print media can learn from the success of the new European I think optimism, you know, it's uh, when we hear every day about the dire straits that that print journalism is in, it's actually incredibly heartening to think that a newspaper that was pulled together, what, nine days from deciding to launch to actually getting it together and has kept going and is getting, you know, respectable readership numbers. That's something to to take heart in, I think. And I think it should be um, for kind of young journalists coming up and for people that have been in in the business for years and years you should kind of open your eyes to other potential other possibilities we don't have to stick with the 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 same old players yeah i agree with that i mean sensible business model too you know four journalists so they've cut their cloth accordingly good writing you know a a point of view well that helps Um, it helps that you can get alistair campbell and tony blair to just write for you because they want to right i mean not not every local paper can do that no and (laughs) you know if you if there's people you want to read you know, whoever it is, columnists or writers or, or people with a point of view, you will make an effort to go and read those people if they write interesting things that you want to read. And, and, they, and it does that. On the negative side, sorry to be so negative, it is only a year. So let's see. I mean, the first year is hard. The second year is harder. So I hope they're there in, uh, when we're talking in a year's time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, there is just time now for our media quiz. This week it's entitled Innocent Dissemination. I'm going to make a series of potentially libelous and totally untrue statements based on actual news stories from the week. Your job, panellists, is to correct me and apologise before anyone sues. Uh, it's the best of three. Buzzing with your name. So, Maeve, you will say... Maeve. And Paul, you will say... Maeve. The winners <laughs> are the Barclay Brothers. Here is potentially libelous story number one. Buzz in when you think you know which story I've nearly got right. Peter Capaldi poses naked in the sun. Maeve. Maeve. Is this that horrible story about certain newspapers publishing still images from uh, Jodie Whittaker, the new uh, Doctor Who? That is the story, yes. Right. So she, as being an actor in her past, has done some scenes where she may have appeared with... Uh, naked or without clothes and the has, I can confirm okay, has okay she has yes we, <laughs> we may have seen the pictures and um, the yes yeah, certain publications decided to celebrate the news of the very first female Doctor Who by plastering those images all over there which Albert. didn't help when there was already a row about whether or not the reaction to it had been sexist on Twitter and all the rest of it right on the other hand, you know, whether or not you think that was appropriate, it seems to me, depends on whether or not you'd think they'd do the same for a male counterpart. Now, I don't remember them publishing an image of, you know, Christopher Eccleston's penis, but if a male Doctor Who was announced and in their screen history they had done a sex scene, they may publish the pictures just the same, might they not? In which case, why make a fuss? Yeah, you know, I did try and look back. I did do a bit of a Google to see David Tennant. Because <laughs> um, I'm pretty Tough sure he was in yeah. Casanova and I'm pretty sure David yeah. Tennant would have done a couple of uh, raunchy scenes in his time. I don't recall from memory when he was announced that, that those were but that's the first thing about. they made sure. No. Maybe they were. Okay. It's never happened in the old days too, you know. I mean, thinking about uh, William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton <laughs> and John Pertwee, I'm sure they did nothing salacious in their careers. I'm sure that is right. And I'm sure Tom Baker's... And actually, I, th- I think she'll be a very good Doctor Who. I, I thought it was a great move, actually. I'm, I'm definitely for her, Who. and I yeah. look forward to it very much. And I'm, I've been watching, as you can see, for 30-plus years. Okay. Do you watch Doctor Who, Maeve? I'm saying she'll be a good, good, good Doctor Who. I've literally never seen it. I dip in. I may now watch it because I do love Jodie Whittaker. Okay, very good. Okay. very good. Here's potentially libelous story number two, buzzing when you can identify which story I've nearly got right. The Department for Culture, Media and Sport is changing its name to the Department of Clickbait, Misogyny and Slack Threads. Maeve. Paul. Yes, they are doing exactly that. No, they're changing their name. But they're, they're still being the DCMS. Yes. But the D is going to be a double D, if you like. So it's department and digital. So they're now the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Correct. And do you know what? I think this is going to last for 10 years. And in 10 years' time, the D will go again. Because you know what? In 10 years' time, everything will be digital. It's a bit like saying, remind me on radio stations, you used to do a CD show. Yeah. Who does that anymore? So a digital uh, department will be every department, and so it will become uh, a nonsense. But for the moment, they're saying, we're cool, we're trendy, we understand digital, we're going to add digital to our name. 2017 is a little late to be cool and trendy and to suddenly realise that digital is happening. Even Steve Wright in the afternoon realised my news from the web feature was out of date, and that was seven years ago. Uh, here is story number three. 
All local radio stations are purveyors of filth. Maeve. Maeve. That may well be true, but I think that the story that you're referring to is a pirate radio person who is um, hacking into to local radio shows in Mansfield, I believe. Correct. And playing a, a rather rude song. About masturbation. Exactly. This song goes back to 1978. Can you tell us what the song is? I haven't heard it. Yeah, it's, it's Ivor Biggin, uh-huh. which is actually Doc Cox. So Doc Cox used to be a regular on That's Life. So he used to appear on Esther Ransom's That Life. And this song came out, and in fact, it made the top 40. It made number 22 in 1978. Okay. So um, the BBC and all the chart shows couldn't play it. So it was bleeped out or banned What's by the all the radio called? stations. Uh, I can't really say the title. Oh, really? I don't want to say the title, no. Even in a song from 1970, I think Ivor Biggin tells you all, all you need to know. That's the name of the artist. Okay, got That's it. the name of the artist. Right. What annoys me is they couldn't have chosen a more modern contemporary record. <laughs> Why choose something so old and dull from 1978? Plenty of modern songs about wanking. Check Absolutely. Out the Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> uh, well, that means that Maeve, on her debut, is the winner. The, the real Maeve, not Huzzah. the fake one. Congratulations. Um, that is it for our show today. My thanks to Paul Robinson and Maeve McLenahan. You can catch up with previous episodes and get the latest ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website themediapodcast.com by the way we're still looking for dedications for the second half of this year so this week's episode is dedicated to no one if you'd like the next one to be dedicated to you give us some cash and uh, we can keep sending those new editions of the show to your phone keep us on the air go to themediapodcast.com slash donate now and give generously i've been ollie mann the producer matt hill the media podcast is a ppm production and until next time bye-bye small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rustoleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.